Hey guys, my name is Alex, and you're listening to the Thousand Movie Project Podcast, where it is Wednesday afternoon, it is 11.30 in the morning, and I feel like I have to do that introduction at a whisper, because my next-door neighbor is on the other side of this wall, and he works from home, and he does, like, very professional shit, and he's doing, like, conference calls and things, and I'm gonna feel ridiculous if he's like, oh, the bag boy has a podcast. But yeah, I got another day off, and it's not something I should be celebrating. I am celebrating it, and I feel great. I feel really rested. I feel like it's been a very productive day. I should not be celebrating it because it is the, it's, it's the byproduct, and everyone is, is having to deal with it, of business being very slow. At the grocery store, it's the normal, annual, summertime slump. In my early 30s, I don't think I should be succumbing to this trap, but I'm still doing the exact same shit I did in my early 20s when I was working as a busser or a host at a restaurant. When I was in a situation where, like, I definitely needed money. I needed every dollar that I could amass in however many hours they were willing to let me work at a given place, but any time a manager was like, hey, wanna go home early, I was like, absolutely, fucking yes and I don't want to come back. So I had yesterday off, I've got today off, and last night, for the first time in a couple weeks, Maria and I sat down and we started watching something new on Netflix. We started watching um, The the Lincoln Lawyer. It's a new-ish show on Netflix. It seems to be fairly popular, doing pretty well. The second season just came up. And the reason I wanted to watch it is because in this binge I've been going through over the past three months of just reading, like, best-selling crime novels of the past, like, 25 years, one of the novels I most enjoyed was The Lincoln Lawyer by Michael Connolly. I think it came out in, like, 2001. And I was interested to see, like, how do you... It had already been adapted in, like, 2010, starring Matthew McConaughey into a two-hour movie. I don't think that movie did very well, and I have a feeling it would, like, have to be kind of underwhelming, given how complicated the book is. So I was interested to see how they would adapt it for TV, and uh, it was really bad. I thought it was really bad. Granted, all I watched was the pilot, so all we could bear to watch, but it was, like, so heavy-handed. I was interested, I was excited to see how will they take this material, which is so complicated in the novel, and, and it seems like the only reason you can understand everything that's going on in the novel is because it's constantly being explained to you in plain language by the lawyer at the heart of the story. He is also the narrator. But now in the TV show, they have to communicate that really intricate story visually. And I don't know how you'd do that. I was intrigued to see how they were going to do it because given the show's success, I just kind of presumed that they pulled it off. They did not. I don't know, that's jumping to a conclusion, but okay, here's the premise. premise is there's a dude, there's a lawyer named Mickey Holler, and Mickey Holler has Lincoln Town cars. He does a lot of his business out from the back of his Lincoln Town car because he's constantly having to drive around LA to meet with his clients at various courthouses, various prisons. The protagonist is very believable. He's not particularly likable, but it's that compelling kind of story where you're like, okay, here's a piece of shit kind of person, and his shitty behavior puts him in a situation where he now has the very urgent opportunity 
to do the right thing. It's really complicated. It's really interesting. But so, like the first, I can tell right away. The show is gonna be bad from the first scene. And the first scene goes like this. Not the cold open. The cold open, which is just supposed to be a teaser, or a hook. It's like 30 seconds long and it shows some old dude in a business suit. It's, I guess he's a lawyer and he's like creeping around a spooky dark garage and then he gets in his car and a faceless person comes up to his car and shoots him in the head. It's violent, it's abrupt, we don't know who these people are, there's no drama, it's not very artfully presented. It's dumb, but I get it because this is a newish show on Netflix. It's about a lawyer, which is inherently unattractive. And so if they're gonna compete with all the other stuff that's vying for people's attention on Netflix, they're gonna have to like open with a bang, so to speak. So that's the cold open and then roll credits and then we get the first, then we get the first scene. First scene shows the main, the main character, he's sitting on a beach and he's staring out at the water and he's like very pensive. He's having a personal moment. And so what's this image conveying? This very slow zoom on his face while he's having flashbacks to some moment of thrashing in the water. It's, it's conveying that our, our protagonist is tormented. Our protagonist looks calm and appreciative of nature. And now with these spliced images of him thrashing in the water, we know that he's got some kind of trauma. So it's like a cliche shot but it, again, very quickly, very succinctly, and entirely visually, it communicates something about the character. Then his phone rings, and he answers the phone, and it cuts to a shot of the woman who is calling him. A, a petite, blonde woman in a cafeteria. She's dressed professionally, and she's turning toward the camera, and she's walking toward a table. And she says into the phone something like, Mickey! You're the most important lawyer in Los Angeles. Where are you? And then it cuts back to Mickey and he's like, I'm at the beach, Lorna, I don't know, I forget her name. I'm at the beach, Lorna, and don't talk to me like that. You're not my wife anymore. And then it cuts back to her and she goes, that's right, I'm not your wife anymore, but I'm the person in charge of keeping this law practice afloat. And besides, you have to be in the chambers of Judge Horrell later this morning. And then it cuts back to Mickey, and he goes, The Chief Justice? And then she says, That's right, the Chief Justice. And you're the most important lawyer in Los Angeles. And I'm your ex-wife, and also your employee. It was so bad. It was so heavy-handed. Awkward, uncomfortable dialogue, exposition dumping. But at the same time, the premise is like classic TV. It's about a maverick, likable lawyer who solves crimes. Who solves crimes? crimes and i don't know why that premise is always it always sounds funny to me there's a ham sandwich and a glass of milk and it's all crimes the buddy cop formula but the buddy cop formula as like a weekly adventure adolf hitler and woody allen come back from the dead and in order to atone for their sins they have to team up and solve crimes people really like justice which obviously explains the huge popularity of uh law and order people love depictions of justice being served and uh but one of like the reason that is so mollifying so satisfying as a weekly adventure is because well okay it is satisfying because and it is satisfying only if you are pretty consistently depicting the wrongdoer as someone who is like pretty conspicuously and unambiguously wrong and the justice that is ladled over their heads is swift and unambiguous. I know that every now and then, SVU in particular, will pursue a kind of morally ambiguous story, or they'll leave you dangling at the end of an episode, not always in the most artistic or gratifying way. 
but it's cool that they go in that direction. And also, if you're a major franchise specializing in this kind of story where good and bad are clearly demarcated and the bad guy gets punished and everyone has that kind of moral itch scratched and it is hugely popular and millions of people are watching it on a regular basis, that's because it corresponds, it aligns with their own sense of what is right and what is wrong and how justice works. But people's sense of right and wrong and how justice works, it's a thing that, yeah, it could be fortified in the base of their identity, it could be something they believe in very strongly, but in the course of anyone's life, and you don't even need to be leading a very dramatic life for this to be the case, your notion of right and wrong and what is proper and what is improper, they're going to be challenged all the time. They're going to be challenged when things don't go your way, they're going to be challenged when you are wrong and then confronted with the, the question of like, okay, do I just sort of take accountability for how wrong I was and be embarrassed or do I, you know, protect my pride and maybe protect this thing that I stand to lose and just sort of plant my feet and insist that I'm right? You know, the ideological foundations on which we sort of build our identities are constantly being threatened by things that are in the news and by things that are happening to us in the workplace, at home. Which is why, and I know this is not a very popular fucking thing to say, but I do kind of sympathize with like, I don't want to say right-wing extremists, I, I do I sympathize with like the, the good people who live everyday plain lives, who get seduced by a cultish sensibility. Because what a cult does, pretty much all the time, is they come to people who are in, they go to people who are sort of drowning, kind of like Mickey, on the beach, gazing out at the ocean in the opening shot of Lincoln Lawyer. They're drowning in that very visceral first-hand confrontation with just how fucking multifaceted and complicated life is. How much is demanded of you as a friend, as a citizen, as an employee, like all these responsibilities that just pile up and pile up and pile up and having to like resign yourself to this idea that you can only be really good at a few things. There's a lot of shit you have to do every day for the rest of your fucking life, but you can only be good at a few of them, which means that every single day you're going to fail at something and this humbling shit comes at you from every direction and they pile up day after day oh you did this wrong now you got to pay a fine for it oh you did this wrong now you're getting a write-up at work oh you did this wrong now you have to spend three hours in traffic because you made one wrong turn you chose the wrong exit when you make these little mistakes it's it's almost an act of like animalistic self-preservation on an emotional level to start saying you know what it's not me it's external forces because it's it, it really is fucking difficult to try to take accountability for all of those mistakes and learn from all of them simultaneously without you know just having to stop several times in the course of a week and and, and ask yourself like is this all me because it's painful to think that you might be so inept but you're not inept necessarily you're just human and there's just a lot that's demanded of you and you can't be on top of all of it all the time. I mean, I did a podcast like three years ago about a colleague of mine. I think I called him Patrick. That was not his name, but this dude was in his mid fifties and he was working for like, you know, $16 an hour in this tutoring center with me. And when he would talk about his life, things he wanted to do, he would talk as though it had passed him by. There was a bit of whimsy about the way he would talk, a bit of remorse, as if he didn't still have 30 years to live. But uh, putting that aside, if the conversation went in such a direction that he was prompted to sort of explore where things went wrong in his life, he would tell you like the biographical data of, uh, you know, where he went and what he did. And then he would come back again and again to his high school baseball coach 
who refused to sign off on something that would have gotten him a scholarship to go to a particular school where he would certainly have been picked by the MLB and then he would have been a millionaire. It's a pretty outlandish chain of events that he imagines was like right there in his grasp. He'll tell you that story again and again and then, as if it's, you know, no big deal, he'll casually mention that when he was 19, he got his girlfriend pregnant, and then he got her pregnant again at 21, and then they got married at 22, and then they bought a house at 24. And when he reads off sort of the, the grocery list of jobs that he's had over the past 20 years, he'll say that he liked it or that he didn't, but then he hate like, his a shadow would fall over his face, and he'd go into this story about how he was sabotaged, and they took his job away, and there was a conspiracy, people tried to get him fired, and ultimately he quit, or they ultimately succeeded. This was a dude who, like, when he told you about his entire life, there wasn't a single scenario in which he did not depict himself as a vessel of potential that was then sabotaged by external forces, people who wanted him not to succeed. Not people who wanted to steal something from him, just vindictive, evil characters who couldn't cope with sort of the majesty of his potential. Anyways, it's very frustrating when people act that way, when they talk that way. Shit happens in life and it challenges your senses of like justice and what is right and what is wrong. And when you keep fucking shit up and doors seem to constantly be slamming shut in your face, I think everyone has moments where they start entertaining the idea of like cutting through red tape of pursuing and capturing the thing they want in like not exactly the most eth ethical way like not necessarily like oh i really want this tv i'm not able to get enough hours at my job to save up for it i'll just steal it that's like that's one example it's very black and white and not many people think that way but for for instance like you've got a small business and it just opened up and now you're starting the social media page it's kind of embarrassing to be pitching your services when you have no followers so maybe you just buy a couple thousand i wouldn't say that's immoral but arguably like if you're a small business and you know that your follower count is going to give the impression of people who have gone to your business and been satisfied with the service that's a little misleading to go ahead and buy followers and it but if you're in that situation i think it makes a lot of sense if and i don't think anyone would really grill you about being dishonest if you were to say look i'm a fucking small business and i'm just trying to get my shit off the ground i'm a hard worker i work honestly but i just need to sort of cheat here just to get one little leg up and no one's gonna get hurt and if you're running a show like law and order or ncis or presumably the lincoln lawyer you are performing a service that is arguably more than entertainment. It is arguably, it's a bit of a stretch, but you could say that when it comes to people's media consumption, that the people who are tuning in weekly for these stories that reinforce and secure their sense of what is right and what is wrong, they're almost consuming it as like part of their media diet. Not just an entertainment, some fleeting thing that, to which they're going to give 90 minutes of their attention or 30 minutes of their attention, but something that actually stays with them. Something they sit down and tune in for almost in sort of the second nature way that after a while you start popping your, your multivitamin in the morning. There's a, a philosopher named Slavoj Žižek. He's a funny dude. He's got these mannerisms. I should do an episode about him. And he talks about like communism and, and pop culture. And at one, he, there's one point 
And I forget where it was, but he argued that like part of the reason that sitcoms are so rewarding and so popular is because you get home at the end of a long work day. A sitcom comes on at an hour in the evening where you've already eaten, you've already showered, you're pretty much ready to go to bed. And then not only does the sitcom come on and bring entertainment into your living room, the sitcom, ostensibly filmed before a live studio audience, it actually laughs for you. It applauds for you. It doesn't even burden you with the, the mental effort of trying to parse the jokes from the dramatic parts. It actually cues you with canned laughter and canned aww. And I think his point there is that it's, it's, it scratches the same itch that like fascism scratches, which is as we're just talking about or as I'm talking about into a microphone. Every day you're beset with all this ambiguous shit, really discouraging shit, and things that are entities trying to tell you that you fucked something up, that you were supposed to figure this out, get this task right, and you didn't do it. And wouldn't it be so much easier, wouldn't you feel so much better if someone just came into your life and told you what the fuck to do and how to do it and how to behave, where to go, where to live, who to marry. Anyways, the thing I like so much about the Lincoln Lawyer books, that book series by Michael Connolly, is that they explore the ambiguities of the system, how the legal system in many ways becomes the parasite that is larger than its host. Last year, I did a deep dive into study, a research thing into US prisons, and in particular, did a lot of reading about what's referred to as like a carcical culture. Carcical referring to like incarceration. The way you can explore this idea is that in the 1980s, Ronald Reagan, obviously the war on drugs, way more people are going into prison than ever before in the nation's history, and we need more space for locking these people up. And so Reagan has a bunch of huge federal prisons built around the country. They kind of want it to be isolated, so of course these prisons are built in isolated places where there isn't a lot going on. So, all right, those prisons get built and God knows he's creating enough inmates to populate those prisons. But again, those prisons are very remotely located. So how are you going to get people to work there as wardens, as corrections officers? So in these remote areas where there's a giant prison, they start building housing around that prison so that the employees don't have to drive two hours to get to work. And because the prison employees aren't the only adults in their household, suddenly small businesses start showing up here and there around the prison. And then when it's clear that there's something of a commercial community here in this small town, in this remote region around this prison, some of the big box stores start to show up. So there's a Kmart now, and there's a Walmart, and a Sears. And where, where there's big box stores, you fast food follows shortly after that. So now, in this very remote place, there is a prison. And then around the prison, at some distance, but still, you know, around the prison, there are housing developments. And then among the housing developments, there are small businesses. And among the small businesses are big businesses and restaurants. And over the course of like five or six years, suddenly you have an entire community, an entire city, an entire economy that has at its center a massive prison. And if that prison closes, this community will not function. This community's economy will collapse. And it's not like people could just pick up their shit and move to the next town and start over. If the economy collapses, 
people are just gonna fucking suffer. They're gonna starve, and if they start to starve, or if they can't get their medicine, they're gonna start stealing, crime breaks out, depression is rampant, when depression is rampant, drug abuse is close to follow, and all you need is one opioid outbreak in a small town to, like, flood that town and trickle over into the next one. So now they've built this monster of a town around a federal prison, and even if there aren't enough people getting arrested anymore, even if the law has relaxed on some of the drug policies that put people in that prison, they cannot afford to not lock people up for life. It got really intricate, but anyways, that's what I mean by like, okay, the system is huge and it's complicated, it's a parasite, it does good things, a lot of people get fucking sucked into the treads of this machine and destroyed. Those Lincoln Lawyer books do a great job of exploring it, the Lincoln Lawyer TV show seems not to be doing that. I'm basing this impression off the pilot episode alone, but also realizing it looks like an NBC program. It's very clean, everyone's hair is immaculate, dialogue is clunky but crisp, the scenes are succinct, there's nothing remotely artful about any of it, it's just efficient. And in that respect, maybe it's exactly what it needs to be. Anyways, uh, this recording has been going on for almost an hour. I think this is the longest time I've ever sat alone in front of the microphone. And uh, yeah, that's what a day off will do to you. Thank you so much for listening. If you like what you heard, if you'd like to get more of this, you can um, write a positive review of the podcast wherever it is you get them. Spotify, if you're a paying... If you've got a paid account on Spotify, you can give a star rating. If you use iTunes or Apple Podcast, I think you can write an actual review. I see them all. They're really rewarding. It really helps if I'm ever in the dumps. And also thank you to everyone who has been so kind as to reach out over the past few weeks and just say that you are enjoying the show. Thank you again for listening, and I will talk to you next time. <laughs>